Let's turn together to the evening scripture reading from the book of First John in the New Testament. You will find First John, of course, immediately or almost immediately before the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. And we are going to read only three verses from chapter 3 of John that we spent a number of Sunday evenings in studying together. Uh, just three verses out of the series of studies that uh, we have engaged in. I want to focus your attention upon these verses, as I'll explain in a moment for a particular reason, verse 2 and verse 14 and verse 24 of First John chapter 3 where we read, Dear friends, now are we the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then again in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And then again in verse 24, the final verse of the whole chapter, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Thus reads once more the living and abiding word of God. Now, for a number of Sunday evenings, as most of us are aware, we have been going through the book of First John, and this evening we are going to do something that is a little unusual in this series. We are taking a kind of break, not a complete break with the studies in First John, as you will see from the reading, but a break in the sense that instead of going on to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we would normally have been doing this evening, progressing steadily through these expositions of First John, we are turning back to three verses that we did consider in part in the course of the regular exposition of chapter 3. But three verses that in a very wonderful way, I suggest to you, bring before us the subject that we considered together last Sunday evening, the subject of having confidence before God, the subject, if you like, of Christian assurance with which the New Testament is so readily familiar. And I'm doing this because these three verses that we shared a few moments ago, verse 2 and verse 14 and verse 24, introduce this subject of assurance, you notice, in the same way. Each one of them contains the words, we know. Let me direct your attention to them again this evening. Verse 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. Verse 24, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he has given to us. And the term we know occurs twice, you notice, in verse 24. 
Now, through our studies in First John, I'm sure that we're all very familiar that John has much to say on the subject of assurance. He teaches, as all the New Testament writers teach, but it is one of the great privileges of the Christian believer not to think merely, or to conjecture merely, or to hope merely, but his faith in Christ is genuine, and he has been saved everlastingly by the work of Christ. But John encourages us, as the other New Testament writers encourage us, to know beyond any measure of doubt that we are not counterfeits who have believed in the Lord Jesus and are obeying his commandments, but we are indeed and in truth the very children of the living God, and that the salvation of our souls is not a matter of conjecture or speculation, but is itself a great and glorious certainty that should bear us up in our trials and difficulties in the Christian life and should enable us to run with patience the race that God has set before us. We know these things, says John. And my beloved friends in the Lord, we have seen so often in these studies in First John the beautiful biblical balance between the searching teaching of the apostle as he applies the tests of whether we are real Christians to us, balanced by these passages that bring wonderful assurance to the genuine believer. And this is surely what John is doing as he brings before our attention this evening these three verses from chapter 3 of First John. Now let me say to you also, before we look at these three verses together tonight, that our knowledge as Christians, as you readily know, is exceedingly limited. There are many things that are so great and wonderful that God has in store for us that we do not fully comprehend or understand. There are many things, even in the Scriptures, beyond our comprehension. And just as general knowledge in the world has been compared very often to a vast ocean and men are like those going along and picking up a few pebbles on the edge of the ocean, but never able to plumb the depths of all the knowledge that exists in the world. So in scriptural terms, we are very limited in what we understand of all the great things that God has revealed to us. Our ignorance is palpable and humiliating very often, and it behoves us, therefore, to get a tight as grip as possible on the things that we may know and ought to know to our encouragement and for our soul's comfort and help. And so before us are these three great things this evening. Well, what are they? I'm going to deal with them tonight in a slightly different order from that which is on the sermon sheet, and I am responsible, incidentally, for the order on the sermon notes. But the more I studied these verses, the more I felt it was appropriate to change the order. 
So the second of them I'm dealing with first, and the third one on your sheet I'm dealing with secondly, and the, and the first one I'm going to deal with last of all. Now, what do we know, according to John? And the first thing, then, I suggest that we know is from verse 14, that we have passed from death to life. Because, John says in that verse, we love our brothers, and anyone who does not love remains in death. Verse 14. Now let's look at this verse. It's a very important one. Remember that John's purpose in writing these verses that begin, we know certain things, is to provide assurance to God's children. And we've seen how necessary this balance is in John's teaching. Because even as he wrote this marvelous letter of First John, he knew that many genuine believers were deeply perturbed by the counterfeit believers who had come into their very fellowship. And they were asking the question, these genuine Christians, are we mistaken? Are they really the genuine article and we the counterfeit? When they claim so many great things about their knowledge and their maturity and their teaching as we've seen all through this letter? And no doubt some of these genuine believers were equally disturbed by John's straight shooting from the hip, if I may use that term, as he provides these searching tests of keeping the commandments of God and loving the brethren and loving not the world and walking in the light and so forth. And it led them to ask in their own minds, do we really measure up to these things? Or are we, as I said to you last Sunday evening, a poor apology for a Christian? So we need to look at what John says to us in verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. We need, as it were, for a moment to unpack the treasures of this great 14th verse of the third of First John. Now, what is it saying to us? There are three important truths. Look at them with me. He's saying to us, first of all, that the one who does not love, and I'm looking at the end of verse 14, the one who does not love remains, says John, in death. Now, what does this indicate to us? Well, it indicates that men and women in their natural state, beloved, are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins to begin with. Not that they die later because they have sinned, but because they are already spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. It's an indirect evidence, if you like, of John's holding to the doctrine of original sin, that doctrine that is so unpopular today, that teaches us that men are not in their natural state neutral, and then through some variation of their circumstances and their home background, they either turn out good or bad, right or wrong. They start as sinners, and express their sin in everything that they do. 
And that's why he tells us that the person who does not love remains in death. He's already in a state of death. He continues in that state of death if this mark of being able to love is not found in him. Now, this is very important for the subject of Christian assurance, you see, as a ground of assurance, because if I, as a Christian, am acting differently from that of the non-Christian, if I am enabled in some sense, some real sense, to love the brethren, it must be because something profound has happened in my life and experience. I'm not behaving like others. I am not remaining in death. And it's very interesting that the Greek word death has the definite article in front of it, ho, the definite article in Greek, does not remain in the death. And it's very clear that what John is doing is saying, but the person who is spiritually dead, who is unregenerate, who is still encompassed about by the doctrine of original sin and is under sin's dominion, he is under the death, is remaining in that state of spiritual alienation from God and separation from him. And in spiritual death, he cannot possibly love. As John indicates, we are able to love if we are the children of God. Now, do you see what I'm saying to you? That's the first truth. Now, the second truth follows very quickly. The supernatural state of the new birth. Do you notice that he says that Christians are those who have passed from death to life? In other words, becoming a Christian is like a work of resurrection from the dead. No one grows into Christianity. This is one of the great heresies of theological liberalism today in so many churches. That you grow into becoming a Christian by doing certain things, by becoming a church member, by taking communion, by doing this or that or the next thing. A religion ultimately of human works. But what John is telling us is that Christianity is a divine creation or work of recreation in the believer that takes him out of a state of spiritual death into one of new and resurrection life. We have passed from death into life, says John. Otherwise, we are like these other people, spiritually dead still in trespasses and sins. And again, it's very interesting in the Greek that the definite article is before the word life. We have passed from death into the life that is the life of God that is available to us in Christ, that is the power by which we are drawn out of the state of deadness and alienation from God into the state of the life. And it's only the Christian that knows the dimension and the wonder and the grace of living in the life that God has given to him.
in communion with himself. Now that's the second truth. But do you notice the third truth is that the impartation of that divine life must be accompanied by the characteristics of the one who gave the life to us. What is the characteristic of the one who gave us that life? And John says, it is love. Because we know that we do not remain in death, but have passed from death to life by what? By the fact that we love our brothers. And the great characteristic, as we have seen throughout all of this epistle, of the author of eternal life, of God the Father himself, is that he is the God who is love itself. Now, you see, anyone who does not practice, therefore, this love of God cannot be assured that he belongs to God's family. Because if I have not remained in death, but have become spiritually alive to God, I am going to show in my life the characteristics that are his. And I'm going to begin to love the brothers, that is, those who are in the Christian fellowship, as I have never been able to love any other person before. And no matter what my background is and my upbringing and my former beliefs and my former profession, now I am in a transforming experience of being able to love the brethren. And contrariwise, the person who does not practice love cannot be assured that he belongs to God's family. And this is the application that John is making. Do you see, my dear friends, what he's saying? A great spiritual transformation has come about in the Christian, the only authorship of which must be divine. He was dead and remained in sin and death. He is now alive because the Spirit of God has quickened him in his inmost being and death has given place to life. How do I know this? Because I love the brethren in a new and self-sacrificial way, not the self-centered way that we saw. Cain loved himself, but the self-sacrificial way that Christ loved his church. And this is one of the strongest evidences we possess of being the true children of God and not counterfeits of having passed in reality from death to life. We love the people of God. Now this is one of the testimonies, says John, that God gives us to know that we have been truly born again. Now isn't it interesting that John uses the term brothers as he describes this test to us in verse 14, that we love the brothers. doesn't use the word beloved, although he addresses the fellowship often in the term beloved, as we've seen in this letter. But it's as though there is special emphasis upon the word brothers. It suggests the idea of families. And you see, on the one side, there is the world's family with Satan as its head, and on the other side, is the family of Christians with the Father as its head. 
And just as the world's hatred is seen not merely as hatred of itself, but in the fact that it equally hates Christians, so the Father's love in Christians is not a general love for all mankind, but rather a particular love for the family and within the family. And I need to ask myself tonight if I think I'm a Christian. Have I come to love my spiritual brethren and sisters in the Lord in spite of all their rough corners? and sharp edges, and some of us, oh, we do have them, don't we? Have I come to love them in a way that I did not know the meaning of love before? That's it. It's a fundamental thing. It's a very practical thing. It's a thing that comes naturally to the children of God, but is oh so unnatural to those who still remain in death because they are not participants in the quickening life of God in their souls. If we love the brethren, says John, we know, not hope, not conjecture, not think, we know that we have passed from death to life. Now, isn't that a wonderful and so practical truth. I may profess many things with my lips, but in my life do I evidence this mark of being a genuine child of God, and do I evidence it in a way that others see it and are conscious of it, even the world being conscious of it, how we love one another. We know by that means but we have passed from death to life. Now the second thing that he tells us, and we're passing on to verse 24, is this is how we know that he, that is the Lord, abides in us or lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Now this is further confirmation of the doctrine of Christian assurance. How may I know that I am real and not counterfeit in my faith. How may I know that I have passed from death to life apart from loving the brethren? Well, the answer is that I am conscious of God's Spirit abiding in my heart. And the Lord, therefore, by that Spirit abiding in my heart. Now, you may remember in the Old Testament that Solomon once asked, Will God indeed dwell on the earth in that great prayer that he offered at the dedication of the temple? And the answer we know is most assuredly, yes, he will dwell upon the earth. And the apostle catches up that truth, the apostle Paul in Second Corinthians 6 verse 16 when he says, you are the temple of the living God, you Christians. As God said, I will dwell in them and with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a promise that is. So that every believer in the Christian church is indwelt by the presence of the living God. He is a temple in which God is both the owner and the occupant. And we who are Christians 
cannot afford, beloved, to be ignorant of so great and expansive a fact as that. We should know it and dwell upon it and be assured by it. It is, after all, the secret of power in the Christian life, isn't it? When our Lord Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. It's the secret of holiness in the Christian life. No one, said John in this very chapter, who abides in him sins. And we saw the interpretation of that very unusual verse in chapter 3 of 1 John is that we do not habitually sin when we are abiding in Christ. In other words, the believer recognizes there is an incompatibility of sinning with abiding in the Lord and he abiding in us. And in that truth is the great secret of holiness. But you see, what John is teaching us here is really the summary of all his other teaching in verse 24 as he gathers it all up. That if we walk in the light, if we confess our sins, if we love the brethren, if we love not the world, if, in other words, we keep his commandments, do you notice how the verse begins? Those who obey his commandments live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. If we are doing all of these things, we have assurance that we are abiding in him and he is abiding in us. It's the truth of John 15 expressed somewhat differently. I am the vine, said Jesus. You are the branches. Abide in me and I in you and you shall bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. You remember in that passage. And beloved, this is not a mystical experience. I grant you there are mystical aspects to the experience of Christ abiding in us. How else could it be with the wonder of the second person of the Godhead indwelling his people as a holy temple by his Spirit? Of course, there is a biblical mysticism here that we cannot explain, something that is better felt than telt, as we say in Scotland, something that is better felt than expressed. But it is not just a mystical experience. We are constantly abiding in him and he in us when we are constantly obeying his commandments and selflessly loving our brethren in the Lord. And what happens, says John here in this verse, is that the Holy Spirit takes the evidence that we are doing all these things and he sheds a divine light on it and shows us that we are in him and he is in us. You see, we often look at these things, don't we, and we say, well, our walking in the light is imperfect and our keeping of God's commandment is oh so deficient, and our love for the brethren, we're ashamed of it. But the question is, is that the direction of our hearts and of our lives? And if it is, when we come into those positions of darkness and uncertainty, 
the Holy Spirit shed light upon that testimony of how we are living. And by that light, he confirms, according to verse 24, that we know he is living in us. And what a wonderful further confirmation and assurance to the believer this is, that he is a child of God. We know that he abides in us by the Spirit that he has given to us. Now we come thirdly to the final source of assurance that you find in verse 2. We know, says John, that we shall be like him when he appears, for we shall see him as he is. Now it's the third thing by which the true Christian may and ought to know that he is in Christ in a real sense and is not a counterfeit. And the purpose of this is that John has been taking us through the tests of being a Christian up to that point in verse 2. And you remember in verse 29 of chapter 2, he's come to the point where he says that everyone who does what is right has been born of him that is born of God, chapter 2, verse 29. Now, it leads on to the thought at the beginning of chapter 3, you remember, that if we are born of God, we must show the likeness to God who has become our heavenly Father in Christ. And it leads John on to reflect on two things in those opening verses of 1 John chapter 3, our present dignity and our future destiny. And if you notice there in verse 1, he speaks of our present dignity. See what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children or the sons of God, and such we are, says John, overcome with wonder. And he thinks of the wonders of grace that have brought us there, as we are encouraged to do as we read his words, the wonders of Christ sacrificing himself for us to take us out of a situation of alienation where we are children of the devil. And by his propitiation and by his work of adoption and regeneration, bringing us into that other family, which is the family of God. See what manner of love he has bestowed upon us, our present dignity. But then it leads on to our verse, verse 2, our future destiny. Now it's remarkable, beloved, because there's a contrast between what we are in verse 1 and what we shall be in verse 2. If we are to marvel at God's love that is extended to us in bringing us out of that state of alienation and sin into the very family of God, we are to wonder still more that our present dignity will one day be eclipsed entirely by our future destiny when we shall see Jesus when he appears and we shall be as he is. Now do you see what he's saying to us? There is something still further for you even as I speak about it, my mind and my heart are overwhelmed 
Is it not enough that I've been reconciled to God? That my sins have been forgiven? That I've been adopted into the family of God and share all the privileges of the children of God? And so we could go on and on and on in those privileges of which the New Testament speaks. But here is something further. It's not guesswork, says John. It's not conjecture. We know that when he appears, there is something further that is going to happen to us that will complete our salvation. It's not complete yet, you know. We've seen that in many places in the scriptures. Our bodies are not resurrected. Although they are saved by Christ's work, it has pleased him in his sovereign providence to save their transformation to that hour when we through death pass into the presence of God and to the coming day of resurrection. But when we stand in his presence, one look at the glorified Lord Jesus will have transforming power. And there will be a moral transformation in us by which we shall be entirely and utterly complete and ready for the presence of God, standing there with glorified spirits, reunited to glorified bodies, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And do you notice what John says about this state? That it defies even the understanding of the redeemed. We do not know what that state will be. It does not appear, he says, what it will be. It surpasses all that the redeemed mind can even think or contemplate about. Some of you who are growing old and the body is failing and the heart is giving out and the limbs are becoming weak and the sight is gone and the hearing is disappearing. What a glorious prospect as you realize each day in this world is like pitching your tent a day's march nearer home when this glorious transformation is ahead of you. Martin Luther said of it that we could not on our earthly spirits bear the wonder of it. And that's why John says it does not yet appear what we shall be. Now as I draw to a close, you know what's happening here, don't you, beloved? You do know the process that will be finished there is beginning here in this life. In Second Corinthians 3, verse 18, Paul says, We all with unveiled face, beholding even now the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And just think, as you see in your brethren here in this service, that transformation taking place, that growth in sanctification, that steady growing likeness to the Lord Jesus, what will it be to contemplate in that place of glory, the stage that is now imperfect, becoming complete? when we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him, who shall change our vile body that even it 
will be fashioned like his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. And John says, we know that we shall be like him. Isn't this a glorious ground of assurance? Well, in summary, as I finish, as God's children, we are being made like him here progressively. But in that day, fully, we shall be like him and see him face to face. May God grant us graciously this full assurance of these three things. Have you passed from death to life? Do you know that that is your estate because you love the brethren in a new and otherwise impossible way? Do you know that he abides in you? Do you know tonight that you will be like him? And may he graciously grant us in this world such assured knowledge of his truth. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you this evening, but the Christian faith is not a matter of conjecture. It's not a matter of speculation. It is a matter of assurance that God gives to us in our inmost soul so that we can say with the apostle and without any shadow of doubt, we know that these things have happened within us. Oh, give to us everyone here, we pray, who is a child of God, such certainty, but is such an encouragement to us as we stand in the presence of God, even here, and have boldness. Therefore, as we come before our Heavenly Father to ask of Him all that is according to His holy will, bless us through this exposition and take us this evening once more in safety to our homes. For Jesus' sake, amen.